welcome Rachel Schroman, owner of Schroman Law. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess just first off, where are you from? How'd you get into law? Um, and uh, I guess, how'd you get into elder law then? Well, I'm from Dubuque, Iowa. I uh, went to Winona State for undergrad, um, which is about three hours away from Dubuque, so started moving north at 18. In college, I was a social work major um, before switching to pre-law. And the reason I, what led me to switch to pre-law was a professor kind of took me aside after a class and basically said, Rachel, you'll be a wonderful social worker for maybe a year. She said, with your personality and just kind of the nature of social work, you'll burn out real fast because you're working within a system that kind of fights against you. And um, I can get very, very emotionally invested Mm -hmm. in individuals I work with and very frustrated when I can only help them to a certain point. So she basically said, you know, based on your strengths and your drive and um, aptitude for education, have you ever thought about law school? And I had. And so I ended up switching to the pre-law route. Um, went to law school, moved up to St. Paul and went to William Mitchell, uh, which is now Mitchell Hamlin. And I actually went into law school with the goal of being a um, prosecutor. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to prosecute uh, domestic violence and sex crimes. And after my first year of law school, realized I really don't have a litigator personality. Mm -hmm. Again, being very, very sensitive. (laughs) Um, It was prosecuting those types of cases just... uh, personally would have taken a toll. So I was in law school, not really sure what I wanted to do, um, kind of wondering why I was in law school at that point. And a professor of mine said, well, Rachel, based on what I know about you, you might like elder law. Why don't you take that course? And I took the course elder law. It was the first time I'd ever even heard of that area of practice and just fell in love with it. Yeah. I guess growing up, why did you even think that like maybe you could be a lawyer? Because that's I mean, being a lawyer is hard, you know, going through law school and everything. And then starting off with that prosecution, I guess, were you good at arguing with your parents, I guess, at home or like, I don't know about arguing, Mm -hmm. but I will say my, so my mom tells a story about when she started to encourage me to go to law school. Um, and one thing I will say is I had parents, um, particularly my mom who really believed we could do anything and Mm -hmm. taught us to believe that. Like if I called her today and said, you know what, I've enjoyed being a lawyer, but I I think I want to be an astronaut. I think I'll go to the moon next year. My mom would be like, okay. Yeah, (laughs) do it. Why not? Yes. So anyway, um, she tells a story that I was in fifth or sixth grade and I went to her and I said, I I want contacts. I was wearing glasses at the time. Um, And I said, I really, really want contacts. And she said, you don't need contacts. Um, Glasses are fine. If you can convince me why you need contacts, I'll get them for you. And I think she kind of expected me to, well, because I want them. You know, glasses aren't cute. And I came back with, like, this very persuasive analytical argument, which got into, like, cost savings, efficiency in gym class, like all of these points and went through them. And, um, she said, after you went through all the points, I honestly was like, Oh, she needs contacts. And I got contacts. So it's not, I don't know about arguing as much as being able to view a situation or a position analytically and then, um, advocate for myself or for another person Mm -hmm. in a persuasive manner analytically. And yet you're still wearing glasses today. 
Ugh, don't even get me into the LASIK story. You ha- you got LASIK mm-hmm. and it didn't work, I, I assume? Well, it, so yes. And your eyes can change mm-hmm. as you get yeah. older. So in my 30s, my eyes are still changing. So what I will say is the glasses are mainly for driving and seeing far mm-hmm. away. Prior to LASIK, I would have walked into a wall three inches away from me. Yeah. Like I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. So LASIK helped, but yes, I'm, I'm back in glasses now. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? The glasses, I, I wear contacts and glasses yeah. and I kind of switch off. I, I like the glasses, Yeah. but I did have contacts for like a whole year, like my sophomore year of high school. And then I was like, man, when I take my glasses off to like play hockey, couldn't see. So I was right. like, yeah, yeah, this is not good. <laughs> yeah. Well, wait till your thirties scout. Yeah. Your eyes start Just get sensitive. worse and worse. Yeah. They get worse. Uh-huh. They get sensitive to contacts. It's uh, yeah. It might be, might be rocking the glass a little bit more. So, um, then I guess going into college, why did you think that social work was the right path for you? Um, well, interestingly, this, you might find this interesting with Mm -hmm. your major. Um, originally when I went into college, I thought I wanted to do creative writing or journalism, um, because I enjoyed writing. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up adding a women's studies minor, which was a, um, very human focused, socially liberal minor. And so we were learning a lot about disadvantaged populations and just things that were new to me at that age and maybe weren't conversations that were happening when I was growing up in a smaller town in Iowa. Um, And so I became very passionate about helping and advocating for individuals who couldn't do that for themselves or didn't have the resources or the family support, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so with social work, I just wanted to give back. Um, cause I grew up with a lot of privilege, a yeah. lot of privilege mm-hmm. that has put me in a position where I was able to get the education I did, um, to be able to speak eloquently, to think analytically. Um, and I wanted to use those skills to help other people. Yeah. So you mentioned moving from a small town now here. What what was that? I guess when you were young, like what was that transition like? Well, I kind of baby stepped. Mm-hmm. Um, although I don't know if Winona, Winona's probably smaller than Dubuque. Um, but what I will say is when I was 18 and I moved to a college campus, um, that was my first time being around diversity. Mm-hmm. We yeah. maybe had my, I mean, in my high school class, I graduated with two, 300 mm-hmm. in my class and our whole school maybe had two or three people of color. Yeah. So I kind of eased into a bigger city atmosphere. Um, went to Winona, had diversity on campus. Now <laughs> my freshman year, my roommate was from Coon Rapids and mm-hmm. here I'm coming to Winona and I'm like, wow, look at all the diversity. And she's like, are you kidding? <laughs> this is yeah. the whitest place I've ever been. Um, when I moved up, so there was that exposure. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. I will yeah. say moving to St. Paul and being in the city uh, when I was 22 was refreshing. Driving took some getting used to. Like mm-hmm. I remember my first time merging onto a four-lane highway. Really? Uh-huh. So there's not like you, did you not drive much in Iowa, I guess, or like? Um, well, there was like a two-lane highway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, for a short Small stretch. Small town, but yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. but it was mostly 35 miles an hour yeah you know we didn't have clover exits like none of that i guess it's still just two lanes on the way over to minnesota too Mm -hmm. so yeah then i guess going from hamlin to st paul you you're probably a little shaking at the wheel a little bit oh yeah yep yep (laughs) yeah for the first time i'm sure that was a little nerve-wracking so then you go in um 
so you're in law school, your uh, professor tells you that you may be interested in elder law. Yep. Why did that class change your mind? Like what, what about it said, okay, yeah, I, I do like elder law. This, this is something I can pursue. Well, it kind of reignited a passion that existed earlier in my life. When I was 14, I started volunteering in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. So from a young age, I had al always been drawn to working with elders, um, taking time, being patient with them, hearing their stories, um, things that maybe our society doesn't value a ton, or at mm -hmm. least in my experience or how I felt at that age. So when I took elder law, I was kind of reminded, oh yeah, like I really do like serving this population. I really do like working on that end of the life spectrum. Um, I also learned a lot about elder abuse and financial exploitation. Now keep in mind, I had a very, very um, human rights focused, socially liberal college education. I had never heard about elder abuse or elder financial exploitation, which blew yeah. my mind. And so I sit down in this course and I learn how prevalent it is. Um, and I, I cannot pull the statistics out of my mind mm -hmm. right now, but cases of elder abuse and financial exploitation happen more frequently than cases of child abuse. I mean, it's massive, yeah. massive, huge problem, but we don't talk about it. And what are those... Um cases like specifically like what is a elder abuse case um well those can vary i mean it can be outright abuse or neglect that can happen in a nursing home it can also happen at the hands of a family member and it's important to note that abuse and neglect at least in i'm speaking to elder abuse doesn't always necessarily have to be malicious or intentional or very overt mm -hmm. i'll give an example and this was something i found really interesting um when it was brought up in the elder law class that I took. So example, uh, elder woman, um, has Alzheimer's and doesn't want to go into a nursing home. Family doesn't really have money to put mom in a nursing home. Uh, kids are saying, Oh, $9,000 a month for the nursing home. That's our inheritance. So one of the daughters says, well, I'll take care of mom at home. Mm -hmm. Daughter is not trained to take care of an elder individual suffering from Alzheimer's daughter does not know how that manifests. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, daughter has to go to the grocery store, is worried that mom's going to leave the house and wander somewhere, so she ties her to a chair. Mm -hmm. That's elder abuse. Okay. And things like that can happen when there's not planning ahead of time and conversations and all of that. Um, so that would be an example. Elder financial exploitation, that can range from scams. Um, clients will report the second they turn like 65, their mail triples. Really? Uh-huh. Wow. Yep. Because, uh, you know, places can pull mailing lists. Mm -hmm. People will target individuals ages 65 and older with the thought that as we become older, we become more vulnerable, which is true mm -hmm. to, to an extent. But I'll tell you what, at the age of 35, I've gotten mailings before that look like a bill and I've written out the check, gotten it ready to go. And then I go, wait a minute, that, why do I have a bill for that? And then I look at it closer and it's a scam. Mm-hmm. So they can be really, really savvy. Yeah. So that's it can range from that to someone literally stealing a family member or a neighbor's money. Yeah. With these exploitation cases, I guess over the years that you've been involved or maybe just in research that you've done, has exploitation um, become more prevalent with internet use? 
and um, like on, I guess, social media, on Facebook, on, um, you know, or phone calls specifically? Yeah, I, I think technology definitely makes those things a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, think about elder individuals as well as having a higher likelihood of being isolated. Um, the ability to get out of the house uh, isn't as easy, you know, as being in our 20s or 30s and just jumping in the car and driving. Yeah. It's a little more when you're older and you have to think things out. Um, family starts to pass away. Friends pass away. People become more isolated. Uh, someone reaching out on Facebook and starting to chat with you, that's how a lot mm. of these situations can develop. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So for those who don't know a lot about outer law, you've given kind of a, a little bit of a breakdown, but what do you do on a day-to-day basis to, um, I guess, keep your clients happy or mm-hmm. gain new clients? So I am an elder law attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, I also do estate planning, which kind of falls under the umbrella. Um, I work more on the preventative side. So what that means is clients are coming in to me um, to plan ahead. Mm-hmm. So estate planning is things like wills, trusts, powers of attorney, healthcare directives. Um, the elder law that I do is more medical assistance for long-term care planning. So what that means mm-hmm. is individuals are coming into me. Um, maybe it's children on behalf of a parent, or maybe it's a couple and husband just got diagnosed with dementia in his mid-60s. And they're saying, we're anticipating long-term care costs we might need to go on medical assistance for long-term care to help us pay for that. Mm -hmm. How can we navigate this strategically to preserve and protect assets and utilize them in a way that supports us before we get to the point where we qualify for or have assets low enough to qualify for medical assistance Mm -hmm. for long-term care. Okay. And so people are generally coming in for themselves or is it family members? Most of the time it's for themselves. With mm-hmm. estate planning, um, the individual has to hire me to draft it. Yeah. So um, you could not come in and say, my dad needs a power of attorney. Can you draft it? No. Mm-hmm. Dad has to have legal capacity. Dad has to hire me. Dad has to communicate what he wants. Medical assistance for long-term care planning is a little different. Sometimes someone's child will come in and say, I'm helping mom manage her money. She needs to go into assisted living. Could you please help me to make certain I'm doing this the best way I can and that I navigate it correctly? Mm-hmm. Someone can hire me on mom's behalf in that instance, but not the other. Yeah. But I'd say like 95% it's people hiring me directly. Yeah. Is it sometimes, I guess, hard for people to admit that they might need like the financial help or... Um, like just even coming to you in the first place. Yes. And yes, it can be a hard conversation for a number of reasons. Um, admitting to needing financial help, whether it's getting medical assistance for long-term care, term care to help pay for things. I mean, there can be I think unwarranted, but maybe some shame around Mm -hmm. needing those benefits or utilizing them. But also if someone's coming in and saying, well, I'm I'm having trouble managing my finances. I need to name, I need a document so my daughter can help me with that. That's a transition period of losing autonomy later in life and maybe um, self-recognizing some physical or cognitive decline, which is scary. I watched my dad go through it Mm -hmm. with Alzheimer's. Um, Even that aside, I work with 
plenty of young couples. Yeah. I mean, I'd say a lot of my clients that come in, they're coming in when they had their first kid, you know, to do a will, mm-hmm. to name a guardian. Um, we're still talking about death. Mm-hmm. So if you're not facing your own cognitive decline in capacity, you're facing your own mortality, which doesn't tend to be someone's favorite thing yeah. to sit around and think about. How do you make people feel comfortable in those conversations? Um, well, I'm... Hmm. I guess you can, can, they can never really be comfortable maybe, but like to try and... It can, yeah, so it can vary. What I will say is we work to keep... So that initial meeting is can be the hard meeting. Mm-hmm. You're coming in, you don't know really what to really expect. You're meeting with a lawyer on top of it, yeah. which isn't exactly not stressful, you know. Yeah. Um, we keep the intake really high level, so we don't you know, ask for mounds of paperwork or information. Um, I try to keep the topic kind of light. I'm also very um, empathetic and I can read rooms well. So I notice little things. Um, I've taken training around grief and trauma-informed client counseling. So one thing we learned, um, or I, I learned in a training, which was fascinating, and I'll explain what I'm doing while I do it. Mm -hmm. But when individuals take their hands and they place their fingers on the top of their forehead and then bring the fingers down the side of their face, they're kind of like pulling across their brow and then coming down the side. That's a classic grief sign. Okay. And so, and I will tell you when my dad passed away, I found that I was, um, without thinking, I was doing that a lot Mm -hmm. with my hands. I had a gentleman come in after his partner passed away and he sat there and did it nonstop for 35 minutes. So if I'm sitting with a client and I see them do that, I'm like, whew, okay, something's coming up. So I'm cognizant of that. I'm maybe slowing down. I'm changing the topic. When that gentleman whose partner passed away sat Mm -hmm. there and did that for 30 minutes, uh, we didn't make any big decisions in that meeting. Yeah. Everything we discussed got sent to him in writing afterwards because he did not remember anything we discussed during that meeting because he was in this very intense grief response. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people come to you stressed first off just because you're a lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so I guess what training, I guess, have you done or what have you learned over the years to try and kind of make people's opinions change throughout Mm -hmm. these meetings? Is it, you know, like for this one gentleman, you just said, like, it probably wasn't the first meeting, but maybe it became the second and then the third. Yeah. Um, so few things I do to kind of debunk the, I don't, I don't know if debunk's the right word, but maybe level the playing field. So I'm not, so the fact you're meeting with a quote unquote lawyer is not Mm -hmm. so intimidating. Um, my office is in a historic Victorian, our conference room is set up more or less like a dining room. So it has um, two period dining room furniture. Mm-hmm. We use that as a conference room. It's a little more relaxed. If clients meet with me in my office, um, it's a little more comfortable. They sit on a couch. I come out from behind my desk and sit on a chair across mm-hmm. from them. Um, I've also learned while practicing law how to show up as just as myself and more of a human, which seems obvious, like maybe, why wouldn't you just show up as yourself? But Mm -hmm. I can tell you when I started practicing law and I was practicing law at the age of 25, which seems like wild right now, but that's when I graduated. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a certain level of 
you're young, you're new. I would wear a full suit. I was very uh, buttoned up, mm-hmm. used all the legal terms because I want them to know that I'm smart. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. So I'm going to use the lawyer words, you know, yeah. um, not sharing any personal stories, not getting emotional with the client. That creates a barrier and that creates anxiety and nervousness in my experience. So as I've settled into this role a little bit, just being a human, if a Mm -hmm. client, I was meeting with a client today, we were talking about the power of attorney form. And she said, well, I don't get this. Why do we need an attorney? And I said, misleading name for it, isn't it? I thought the same thing when I first learned about it. Mm -hmm. I did. I remember being in law school and going, well, what the heck's a power of attorney? You're not actually naming an attorney. You're usually naming someone in your life, but it's very misleading. So by telling a client, that confused me too at first. There's not this, well, I know this and you don't. Yeah. Because we all learn everything for the first time at some point. Yeah. Um, if a client, I share personal stories when it's authentic. I had a client recently who is having a really, really, really hard time. Um, one of her sons is struggling with substance use disorder and she's setting up her estate planning. So he won't inherit his money outright because if he has a lot of money and he's struggling with addiction, that can be, um, a terminal situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, this summer I went through helping my younger brother go into treatment out in Colorado real hard. Mm -hmm. I shared that with her and I said, it is really, really scary to see a loved one suffering and it's really painful to watch them slowly kind of circle the drain with this disease. Um, and we had a long conversation just kind of about that piece and it allowed us to then get deeper into what she wanted with her legal planning. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you, I've gotten a number of emails and notes that say, thank you so much. And it's for that conversation, not necessarily the legal work. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Trying to find the like human in yourself, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just having a conversation Yeah. like this, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I tell clients a lot, um, I'm a human first. I also happen to be a lawyer mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can help you as an attorney, but connecting with the client first and bringing your legal expect, um, legal expertise to the table from there, uh, I think helps with a lot of that anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then daily, are you, what's, what's your schedule look like? You're mm-hmm. coming in early and then like, is it meeting, 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 and then paperwork, reading, whatever, you know? Well, it, it varies. Um, for, and part of that is being a small business owner. Mm-hmm. So when I first started my business, I was doing everything. I was the receptionist, the paralegal, mm-hmm. the marketing person, you know, all of it. So my days never looked the same because I was doing whatever needed to be done. Um, a year ago, it was all meetings. I had things structured where I had an office coordinator who was handling scheduling and the marketing, paralegal who was drafting. And so I was just all clients. Um, I hired an attorney. We have another full-time attorney now, um, five to six months ago. So my days aren't as much client interaction. It's a little more, um, employer, which I'm going to be honest is an interesting new thing to settle into. Yeah. Like I'm kind of learning yeah, that, yeah. right? So um, I'm answering questions, I'm training, I'm making processes more efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, some client stuff, a lot of networking. I do a lot of, um, I'm working to do more community involvement. So yeah. things like podcasts, um, public seminars, uh, community education. We do monthly um, community 
groups on grief, loss, and transition. So a lot more of that stuff right now. So it varies. Yeah. How was transitioning into becoming your own business owner when you were on your own and then also being a lawyer at the same time? Mm -hmm. Like that had to be kind of stressful. It, it was. Um, I have a personality where when I'm going through it, I'm very much in survival mode. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem that bad because I think I'm just powering through. And then I look back and I'm like, oh, my God, how did I get through that? Um, it was really, really scary. It was definitely a roller coaster. Um, I was fighting at the I started my law firm when I was 27, 28. Mm-hmm. Didn't have a lot of confidence or self-esteem. Uh, what I did have was a lot of people surrounding me that wanted to support me and gave me confidence and self-esteem when I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. Um, so any given day I could go from jumping out of excitement cause I just got a new client meeting to crying and looking at job listings within like the course of an hour. Yeah. So it was a pretty wild ride. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And then now like, I guess kind of settling into like you said, the employer role, mm-hmm. how, like, can you kind of match up like learning how to be an attorney, like you said, at 25 and then owning the business at 28 and then now being a lawyer? Can you kind of like see where you've kind of picked up these, um, I don't know, habits that you can kind of use now as an employer at all? Yeah. Yes, totally. Um, I can see that. I can also see the same hangups. You know, it's it, the same um, patterns of thinking that yes. crop up, usually self-defeating. And that's just, that's my personal experience. I think when it comes to imposter syndrome or kind of self-doubt, that tends to, I don't think, I know, it tends to be more prevalent with women as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of women business owners talk about it. You're going to hear it a lot with um, women professionals. I've seen that pattern as well. But what's helpful with that is if I do go into, and usually it's something in my brain going, you don't know how to do this. You don't know what you're doing. I'll recognize that. And I'm like, you know what? You told yourself that when you went to draft your first trust and you didn't know what you were doing and you knew how to learn it and you knew how to utilize resources and other individuals and become good at that. And now you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so that's been more of the pattern I've been seeing a lot this past year as I move into this role. Because, boy, last, yeah, it was last week, hour and a half meeting with a CPA and a financial planner learning about profit sharing and setting up 401k. I don't know any of this stuff. It's very intimidating and it's Mm -hmm. all very new. My brain goes, what are you doing hiring people you don't know about 401k profit sharing? Well, why would I? But guess what? I know quite a bit now and I'm going to learn, know keep more learning. Even. Yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Just learning as you go. Right. Yeah. You know, like yeah. even in college, right? Like when you, when the professor, when it's like the professor's not teaching me, well, you gotta like teach yourself. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think there can be a transition. You know, I have a mentee right now who's a law student. Mm-hmm. And when you're in law school and you're in class, you're not expected to know mm-hmm. you go to the class because you're going to read the textbook and you're going to learn it. And then you get turned out of, college or law school or whatever, and you have a degree and it's kind of, for me, it was almost the sense of, well, I'm a lawyer now. I should know what I'm doing. But that's not why, how why it would is. I? Yeah. When I sit down to draft a will, why would I know how to draft a will if I never drafted a will in school? Because it, we were reading case books mm-hmm. in law. So I have a student right now who just puts, um, she's mentoring under me and she puts this enormous amount of pressure on herself to do something once and then know how to do it. 
And I have to tell her, I have been practicing law for 10 years and at least once a week, something comes up that I don't know the answer to, Mm -hmm. which sometimes can be kind of scary. Sometimes I can be hard on myself. It's also what makes it kind of fun. If you were just a master of it and then had to do something you knew how to do backwards and forwards for 50 years or however long you're going to work, that'd be pretty boring. It's fun to learn new things too, right? Yeah. So with your work, I guess you're having a lot of like conversations every day, some of them hard, right? So Mm -hmm. how do you then go home and get out of that, um, you know, work mindset or, you know, the, you know, being a lawyer now, like relax or go do other things to help Mm -hmm. the community or whatever? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's something that's always evolving. Um, I'm still definitely learning that and figuring it out. Uh, What I've been doing lately, I have dogs. Mm -hmm. So I have two dogs of my own, plus I have my brother's dog. So three dogs right now. A lot of dog walks, a lot of dog park. Um, That allows me to relax, get my body moving um, when I'm interacting with the dogs. Yeah. I can Everything's good, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I have a, my own therapist. Um, mm-hmm. I utilize grief-specific therapists um, when there's a, a lot of grief, which this area of work, there can be a lot. Um, clients pass away, and sometimes that's really not easy. Uh, I get attached to mm-hmm. clients. Um, I have core people that I can call and talk to if I have a hard work day, whether it's a business owner or a friend. Um, I try meditation, but yeah, yeah. I'm not a huge fan. I hear it works. We'll see. I, yeah. I feel like it works for some, doesn't work for others yeah. and that's okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how I'm sure it's hard to kind of not take on people's troubles yourself to put that weight mm-hmm. on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. I, I guess, I guess, does that go with, you know, take the relaxation, like trying to get that away? Or I guess has, have you grown in not taking it on your shoulders throughout the years? Yes, I have. Um, relaxation is part of it. I actually will say that I think for me, one of the biggest things that helped me not take things on my shoulders and internalize it was honestly learning appropriate boundary setting. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of when I would work with clients and when I was in kind of the social work, part of what was so hard with me taking it on and it just, you know, the situations becoming my own and devastating me was not having boundaries around what was actually mine to take on and what wasn't and what I was responsible for and what I wasn't responsible for. Mm -hmm. Um, And there've been, I mean, part of that I learned while lawyering I had a client once who lost her mother and she um, suffered from anxiety and really, really intense depression. And I shared a lot of personal things with her and I really could just kind of personally relate to the struggle of her losing her. I got very, very invested in this client and um, there were, it became more of a personal relationship than an attorney client Mm -hmm. and you know that was a problem (laughs) yeah and it wasn't good for the client it wasn't good for me um phone calls started happening that weren't you know she was just checking in because she was having a hard day and i'm like i can't charge you for this am i your lawyer am i your friend so it was working with a therapist and 
learning the skills to set boundaries mm-hmm. and um everyone learns that differently at different ages yeah. i learned it in my 30s yeah and i'm sure it's still kind of hard every once in a while too you know oh, yeah absolutely and there's times where I mean, oh my gosh, I had a a day where it was like everyone that came in was sharing something that struck this chord around my dad's death Mm -hmm. and it kind of triggered that grief. And I went home and I was like, oh, I should go for a walk. I should do this. I should do that. I watched Patch Adams and like (laughs) ate chips and cried, you know, and it was, there can be days that are just really, really heavy, especially when there's personal reminders. When you need those days where you just like totally. lay like face first on your bed and uh-huh. just like hug yeah. the pillow totally. with the dogs too. Yes. Oh, get yes. the, the dogs can chew yeah. you up pretty well. <laughs> um, so I guess, um, you've won some awards. You've been like recognized, um, through your work. Mm-hmm. Does that, I mean, that's gotta feel good, right? Like that, that at least you're making it, you, you know, you're making a difference with your clients, but yes. then now I guess other professionals recognize you as well. Yeah. Yeah. And the recognition, there, there's some professional recognitions. Um, super lawyers is kind of a local thing that attorneys get recognized and that's more professional recognition. Um, that was definitely a big milestone. I mean, a huge honor. And then there's a number of other recognitions that come from, um, clients. So things like, um, Minnesota women's press is a local publication. Mm -hmm. They do, a what is it called? It's like, um, women's most wanted or favorite and they do different professions and then you're voted. And so being voted by clients as a favorite, that feels really, really good because you know, people, you touched them enough or gave them enough of an experience that they're taking the time to go do that. And there's some quote, uh, I don't know who says it and I'll probably butcher it, but it's something about people won't remember what you said or did. They'll remember how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. And whenever I get one of those recognitions, that's what I feel it's speaking to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, what do you think the future is for yourself, for your firm? Um, mm-hmm. how do you continue to, you know, keep, keep going at it, um, and keep growing? Well, our goal is to continue growing Shroman Law, um, and leaning more into, how we're practicing law in the estate planning and elder field. And that's with that more human first approach mm-hmm. and um, holistically. And holistic can kind of be a buzzword. So Definitely, you, uh-huh. yes. <laughs> so you'll hear a lot of, you know, you hear boutique or mm-hmm. um, holistic. Uh, well, what does that mean? I don't know. Holist- Couldn't tell you. Right. <laughs> but holistic is you're treating the individual mm-hmm. as a whole person. So what are professionals doing for that? Um, what we do is we make sure our attorneys are grief and trauma informed. We sponsor these monthly sessions. We bring in different professionals and experts from our networks throughout the Twin Cities. And we have an hour and a half. It's free to the community, free to our clients. The topic is grief, loss, and life transition. So next year we just did the schedule for next year we have someone coming in and speaking about green burial options there will be someone else who will talk about the grieving process Mm -hmm. different ways to grieve it's kind of like what's the right way to grieve spoiler alert there isn't one you know (laughs) um there will be a woman uh, comes in and she talks about grief through creating community 
uh, someone's going to lead a session on writing um, legacy letters. Uh, someone's doing one on pet planning, how mm -hmm. to plan for your pets after you pass. So we try to give back to the community and create this space for clients to come in. Yeah. We have clients that will lose a loved one. Well, we want a community that they can lean into for support as a whole person around mm -hmm. this life transition, not just simply the legal. So we're trying to do more of that, get more involved in the community um, and just kind of encourage professionals, whether it's attorneys in this field or professionals working in areas that center around end of life to incorporate some of these practices as well. Would you say that's needed in like the indus industry as a whole? I think it's needed by our society as a mm -hmm. whole. Um, we haven't touched, well, I don't know why we would touch on this. You probably don't know this. Uh, I'm also an end of life doula. Mm -hmm. So I did end of life doula training a few years ago and I volunteer in hospice. Part of the reason I did end of life doula training was, well, there's a few reasons. Um, one, I was practicing as an estate attorney and had a crippling fear of death. You know, riddle me that. Yeah. yeah. Um, two, when my dad passed away and I went through the process with him, everything that happened when he died was like textbook anatomy 101, what happens when a human body dies. Mm -hmm. And everything was new to me and it shocked me and it alarmed me. And I felt like because I was learning what that looked like, what while growing through it, it robbed me of the ability to be fully present in that moment with him. Mm -hmm. And that really made me mad. <laughs> And then when I was grieving, I didn't know what to do. I did not know that grief was so physical. I did not expect that I wouldn't be able to think straight. I did not anticipate I would need to nap after sleeping for 14 hours. And I just thought, why have I never talked about any of this? Um, why don't we talk about you know, death? We mm -hmm. don't. And so that's kind of the personal passion that fuels it. The more that I've talked about end of life, the less my anxiety around, the, the lesser my anxiety around end of life has become. Mm -hmm. um, when I took the end of life doula training and learned about death and dying and what happens when a human body is shutting down, oh, that happened to my dad because the organ shut down one, but wish I would have known in the moment. Yeah, right. So I wasn't so disturbed by seeing something that was completely natural. Mm-hmm. So the conversations are needed in the industry, but I think they're also needed, needed at large as well because, yeah, I, I care about clients being able to have these conversations um, and do this planning and not be super emotionally distraught. I also really, really care about being able to be emotionally present with my mom yeah. when her time comes to pass. Mm. You know, there's a very human side <laughs> to my passion around this. Yeah, what would you say to people who, I guess, are putting this stuff off? Like and then putting off the conversation? Um, a couple things. I think putting off the conversation, the conversation doesn't get easier. Mm. Um, at the age of 35, for me to sit and think about what do I want to happen when I die and put in my documents, it's not exactly that stressful for me. I'm young. The, I, the idea of death still feels like this really far away, mm. not real concept, which could be true it could not like we none of us know right mm -hmm. um when i sit down and i'm 78 and just got a cancer diagnosis 
probably not going to be as flippant of a process for me. Right. Yeah. And I see that with clients, younger clients can kind of breeze through it. Um, clients who are thinking about this for the first time later in life can be a little intense because it can feel a little more real. Um, putting it off as well. If it's put off and the planning isn't done, the things aren't in place, it can really make things harder on your loved ones. Um, how do I give an example? Okay. I'll give a personal example. Mm -hmm. So, and it will do even just kind of a straightforward document, not even the, your family having to figure out how to go through court after you die. Right. So healthcare directive, mm -hmm. healthcare directive is a document where you say who can make your medical decisions and what you want done while you're in the while hospital. You're, yep, okay. If you yep. can't make your own. Mm -hmm. So my dad had a healthcare directive. Um, it was very, very basic. Thankfully he had it because we did have to utilize it to get the medical team to do what needed to be done to support him in end of life. I mean, mm -hmm. we actually got that documented out and showed it to a doctor who had refused to do something that after seeing the document then was said, able to, yes, yeah. We'll do. Mm -hmm. yeah, that was massive. He didn't have a lot of things in there about what sort of comfort care he would want. Um, two weeks after he passed away, I woke up one day and I was like, oh my God, why didn't we play ZZ Top in the hospital room? Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I scratch his back? Like he loved that. Well, when I was with my dad and he was passing and I was overwhelmed with grief, um, I wasn't thinking of that stuff. My yeah. brain went blank. So my mom has since done her healthcare directive and she put in a lot of specifics. Um, I know that she wants to hear the Everly brothers, for example, mm -hmm. but I don't have to remember that in that moment. So if my brain does what my brain tends to do when I'm struck with grief, which is go blank, mm -hmm. I can literally pick up a piece of paper that says, this is the music I like. This is the touch that I find comforting and I can have that reminder. Mm -hmm. And so this, this planning in these documents, I think attorneys and the conversation around estate planning can really be focused on, well, what legally needs to happen and we need to save taxes and money, 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 money. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. Yeah, that's part of it. And that I don't mean to discount that, but it also gives legal power, a map and a plan to family members in a time when they are grieving, possibly just went through something that was traumatic. I mean, these documents and this planning can really hold people and give them space to grieve and process. That's what I care about the most. Yeah, yeah I'm sure most people mm -hmm. you're not thinking straight when all that stuff is going no. on. So then you get a you get kind of a map, right? Yes. Yes. And I've had clients having to go through probate when there was no will, sitting on a stand, getting sworn in and questioned a month after they watched their father pass away. Mm -hmm. And then I've had clients sitting in my office with me saying, You don't need to do anything. It's as simple as one, two, three very, very different experiences yeah. as an attorney working with the client and the client going through the, the grief process. Um, so that I think it's important to have the conversations early. I value that I've been able to, I didn't talk about this stuff with my dad. Um, just didn't happen. We didn't have those conversations by the time maybe we had the communication and like the emotional intelligence to have the conversation. He had Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. um, I've been able to have those conversations with my mom. I don't care what I do for a living. They weren't easy. Yeah. Um, real hard to have. I'm really, really glad we talked about it because 
it's just, it was not fun to be grieving the loss of my dad and thinking shoulda, coulda, woulda, what if, what might dad have wanted. That didn't feel good. It did not aid Mm -hmm. (laughs) in my grieving process. Having had those conversations ahead of time and having things in writing, um, my mom taking the time to do that, from a daughter's perspective, that feels like a massive, massive gift. Yeah. So I remember in a, um, a psycho or not a psychology a philosophy class last semester, we watched um, this talk about how important it is to talk about end of life care. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've talked about it here. Um, just like, I guess, what would you, you say to people who, again, like putting off that conversation, like, why is it so important to talk with your loved ones about how they want to be treated mm-hmm. at the end of their life? Um, and then maybe even put that in a document or, you know, just to know. It's, I think it's important in two ways. One, as the individual communicating what you would want, um, it's kind of like now's your chance <laughs> mm-hmm. to make sure someone knows that, to talk through it. Um, my, and it, and it doesn't have to be real specific. I think sometimes people can get overwhelmed because they can think, well, I don't know if I'd want to be intubated. I don't know if I'd want this or that in this situation. Well, you don't need to make the actual medical decision. But my healthcare directive says, for example, and this might seem trivial, um, I tend to run very, very cold and my feet are like ice cubes almost Mm -hmm. all the time. And it's very uncomfortable. (laughs) I have this anxiety that I will be in a hospital bed. I won't be able to communicate. And my feet will just be freezing cold. Freezing cold, cold, yeah. (laughs) You know what? My document says, point point blank i'm scared my feet will be cold please check my feet and put a blanket on them fuzzy socks yep Mm -hmm. fuzzy socks whatever yeah you know warm up a rice bag Uh, put it down there um that brings me a little ease Mm -hmm. because i know it's there um i'm not scared of being paralyzed from the waist down but i'm scared of not being able to communicate while i can think you know i can put all of these things in a document and it gives me some peace of mind but having it for the person making that decision for me, it also alleviates a lot of the stress or pressure and sometimes guilt mm-hmm. as uh, you know aftermath. Um, and what I s- spoke to earlier just kind of you know supports that. Um, my mom has shared with me what a life worth living means to her, in what instances she would or would not want to receive artificial hydration mm-hmm. nutrition. Um, when her mother passed away, she had had a stroke and she couldn't communicate or speak. Um, she kept removing her feeding tube. Doctors would come in, put it back in. Grandma would pull it out. Doctors would come in, pull it back in. Grandma would pull it out. And finally, her children, and she had 10 of them, huh, yeah. her kids advocated for the feeding tube. To, they said, no, no, no. She does not want that. She wants to be allowed to die. Mm-hmm. And they advocated for her. Um, that's something that you can put in a healthcare directive. Yeah. And commute, you know, so then make it easier mm-hmm. to make the decision because that's yes. a tough decision to make without not, oh, without knowing yes. what the person who can't communicate would actually want. Yeah. I had a client once who did his healthcare directive with me and he said, um, oh gosh, if I'm at the end, just let me die. Just let me die. I don't want to be kept alive. He came in about a year and a half later and he said, I need to update my healthcare directive. Um, I need to change everything. I said, okay. And so he had had a near death experience and he had almost died. And he said, I remember laying in the bed 
and I could feel the sun, sun shining on my face. And the feeling of the sun shining on my face was enough for me to be grateful to be alive. His healthcare directive now says, um, a life worth me, a life worth living to me means I can feel the sunshine on my face. It was a 180. Wow, that's amazing. Yep. And, and if you had a client that said, a life worth living to me means I can take care of myself, I am fully cognizant, and I know everyone around me and I can communicate, and then another person says, sun shining on my face, if you have a medical emergency, those could be two different decisions. Exactly. Yeah. That's what's helpful. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's kind of an uh, an awesome sentiment too. The sun yeah. shining on my face, kind of beautiful in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so after all this kind of deep talk or whatever, yeah. I ask everyone at the end of the of the podcast what your favorite movie is. So, <gasps> okay, my oh geez, it's a, it's a tough question. I people go back and forth and always say, "Why did you ask me?" This? I know it's. Okay, I'll just give you my go-to that I've mm -hmm. said probably since I was in seventh grade. Mm -hmm. My favorite movie is Braveheart. Oh, Braveheart. Mm -hmm. That is a good movie. Oh, I haven't man. seen that movie since so I was good. probably in seventh grade. Oh, I just love it. It is an awesome movie. Love the music. Love the storyline. Love yeah. the acting. Yeah. So do you like those style, like, uh, war movies? I used to, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think growing up I did. Yeah. Yeah. I watch a lot of dramas now mm -hmm. as if my work isn't yeah, sad isn't enough. dramatic enough yeah yeah um but yeah i think um historical fiction are yeah. movies i enjoy yeah yeah it's really cool to see like how different movies like do it now too like totally oh you know what i just watched last night what jojo rabbit i have not seen it but i remember seeing the trailer for that movie and thinking it looked awesome it is you want to talk about an interesting take on a historical fiction, mm -hmm. which really is a drama. Cause I mean, dear God, it's about the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, it's a satire. It is a wild ride to watch. And it's interesting too, to watch it and then go read some of the reactions and reviews. Uh -huh. Cause it definitely got mixed reviews. Uh -huh. Um, that it's real good. Yeah. Real good. Flick. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've wanted to watch that. And then you have like stuff like that. And then like there was like 1917 a few years ago. Did you mm -hmm. ever see that? The one shot. Movie? Oh, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I could go on about it forever. But yeah. Anyway, thank you for coming in. I really appreciate yeah, it. Giving me. a little insight on something no one probably thinks about or if they are, mm -hmm. you know, they're not, they're not unsure. Yeah. Yep. Uh -huh. Totally. So thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome.